Get that India, big boy. Mike Esimo! Call an ambulance! Maybe call a priest! Oh, what a shot! What a shot! Campbell Killer! Hello and good morning. It's Thursday the 22nd of October. Uh, what are we, about half past ten at the moment, so get this up in the afternoon. I'm 4020, also known as John, in some, in, in some segments. I suppose, but um, these days I suppose you get known as much by your pseudonym as your real name, so that's how it goes, doesn't it? Joining me as always is 60s. How you doing, mate? Mate, I'm doing real well, and it's uh, an interesting uh, edition of the uh, Tip Sheet podcast because, let's say, this is almost by popular demand. Yeah, well, we're, we're definitely, you know, we, we're men of the people, and we like to cater to all segments, and... Last episode, we gave them the highbrow, you know, deep insight analysis of a rugby league expert sort of uh, season review. And now we're going to give them the lowbrow, you know, every man's uh, black and gold version. Oh, mate, I think I think we have to we have to classify your infinite wisdom in football a little bit higher than that. So, <laughs> yeah, um, the the end of financial year sale, maybe instead of black, the black and gold home brand stuff. <laughs> Uh, look, this, but look, there's plenty to talk about. We're we're going to do a bit of a an eels season review. We're going to do a little bit of a look forward because there's a, a bit to talk about in with yeah, some club, signings club announcement yesterday, which yes. is always exciting. And um, speculation on the, you know the old rumor mill about Power Ranger being linked to certain players. So I'm sure we can get that all covered in the back end of the segment. But let's jump into this season review, eh? Yeah. All right. So in case you missed it, Parramatta Eels finished at third this year. So let me just pull up the table. So behind the Penrith Panthers, the Melbourne Storm, 20-round uh, season, 15 wins, 5 losses, 392 points for, 288 points against for a differential of 104. Uh, they went 8-2 uh, and two at home, 7-3 and three away, um, had a win streak high of 5, which was the start of the season. They went 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 before dropping a game against the Roosters. Um, didn't drop back-to-back games all season during the regular season until, unfortunately, the finals. So lots of really cool uh, bits and pieces there. In terms of our finish, um, you got to go back to 2005 to in terms of both ladder placement and differential. Um, I think in 06, I think we might have had a differential of 92, um, but uh, our 104 is the, the best since 2005 where we had 200 and something odd and we won the minor premiership. So, you know, Eels on an upward trajectory, 100% there. Um, done really well when we look at the big picture. Um, yeah, uh, what do you think in terms of you know just the raw numbers, mate? When you look at those fifteen wins, five losses, which include what the losses to the Roosters, uh, Manly, the Cowboys, uh, Penrith Panthers, and the last one is South Sydney. There you go. So you didn't didn't drop two games to any particular team, um, you know. So they weren't completely dominated by one team. Best finish since two thousand and five in terms of raw numbers on the ladder. Um, what do you take away from that? And I'm going to keep it a little bit macro to start off with. Last three seasons, we've gone in the regular season, spoon to fifth to third. So straight away, you've got that upward trajectory that you spoke about. Now let's look at the last two seasons when it comes to uh, wins and losses. Last year was a 14 and 10 regular season, 14 wins, 10 losses. This year, 
15 and 5. So we've had a very much an improvement there. Just looking overall then at what that translates to as a win ratio, last year, the, sorry, the 2020 season, we were looking at a 75% win rate. There's been a bit of criticism about uh, BA lately as a coach. But if we look at the last two seasons, we're now looking at uh, 29 wins out of 44 games. This is regular season, which is a 66% win rate. And even if we throw in the losses in the finals, it's 30 of 47 matches, which is 64%. Any coach in the NRL would be really happy to be churning out that sort of win ratios. So I think in terms of where the Eels are heading from that macro level, I think it's pretty it, it's a pretty good direction to, to be heading in. And obviously that goes without saying that the Eels are not beyond criticism and there's certainly areas that they oh, need to improve. But, yeah, we will We will definitely be getting into um, valid criticisms yeah, because and that's been a sticking aspects point. to improve. That's been a sticking point amongst the fandom in the last couple of weeks insofar as, you know, there's been... You're either, I don't know why, but it always comes to absolutes, doesn't it? You're either 100%, you know, in the team's corner and they're above reproach, or you're, you know, a doomsday death rider when the, you know, like so many things in life, there's a nuanced opinion somewhere towards the middle. You know, Parramatta didn't win the premiership this year. And even if they won the premiership, you know, there still could have been areas of improvement. That's how sport and life is in general. So, yeah. Let's um let's jump into the early season form. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, Parramatta Eels got off to a red hot start, five and zero. Um, and if we just jump into their draw, so obviously we started off with hosting the Bulldogs in one of the uh, more intriguing like score lines of the season, eight and two. Um, played off a uh, the the looming threat of COVID. Um, that was the uh, only time this year we got a full capacity crowd, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. So um got got there. Reed Money got the uh the sort of the game quenching try late in the game. So yeah, we went from there eight and two. Uh, we then went up to the Gold Coast and thrashed the um. I was about to say they thrashed the Cowboys, but thrashed the Gold Coast Titans forty six to six. And what would it turn out to be a, a team that actually you know sorted themselves out late in the season? So uh, I don't know if that was us catching them at a you know a really good time for us or you know a reflective reflective of when we're at our best, how good we are compared to a, a, a plucky upstart team. Um, from there, the season went on hiatus as we um underwent a second preseason amidst the um the COVID nineteen. I'd say scare, but it's still you know a scare across the world. But it put the uh, the entire premiership uh, campaign at risk before we returned. Relaunched the season as the uh, curtain raiser once again. Um, so we we had the season opener against the Dogs and the season reopener against the Broncos. We won thirty four six. Went to Manly in one dramatic fashion nineteen sixteen. Won a classic against the Panthers sixteen to ten. And then finally we dropped our first game of the season in round six against a, a full strength Roosters outfit who did have injuries during the course of the game in Sam Verrills and Victor Radley. But in terms of their actual game day roster, they were at full strength, I believe. And we lost a 24-10 barn burner. That was a very good game. So across those first six weeks, which is just over a quarter of a season, what were your, how were you feeling while we were travelling? What was our trajectory? What were your takeaways? Um, where do you think that sort of set us up, mate? Well, I think what it was setting us up for was the power play of the forwards in that early season form. Even in that big scoreline against the Titans, that was done on the basis of wearing them away. There mm-hmm. was there wasn't any spectacular play. It was it it was just 
smashing it, smashing it, smashing it through the forwards. In fact, I think there was probably some supporters that were feeling frustrated about the manner in which the Eels were using their possession in the in the Titans quarter. But the points really flowed towards the end of that game. Well, and I think that was indicative of a team that was prepared to play patient football. Case in point, and, both, both rounds three and four, oh, sorry, rounds two and three rather, against the Titans before the, the break and then against the Broncos of the resumption, 14, 16 and a half time to Parramatta in round two and 12 to six and a half time against the Broncos in round three. So that that is you know 100% backing your idea of that fundamental uh, sort of brand of football where you just grind away, gain ascendancy through possession and territory, and then you can crush them in the back end of the game. Yeah. And if there's a criticism that I would have of Parramatta was that that sort of platform that was laid, and I think it was fair to say that it was laid uh, uh, quite a lot through the first 10 rounds of the Premiership, I think we we started to go away from it for for perhaps a range of reasons. Mm-hmm. And you would have loved to have had that level of patience, that level of composure displayed in the early season in that last 15 minutes of the final uh, match against South Sydney. So, and, and I understand it's completely different circumstances, different game, different pressure, but it was indicative of the capacity of the team to play that type of football. And uh, that I, I thought that when we're looking at a, at a uh, and we're going to get onto this, a number of our forwards who've earned representative selection as a result of the season, that was the, that early part of the year was the first indication that Parramatta were going to do a lot based on the forwards. And, and the other thing, I suppose, too, which we'll, we'll talk about in terms of player criticisms, and we've spoken about it at length through multiple podcasts um, on the on the negative side, but first four rounds of the year also saw probably the best single-month stretch of form in Kane Evans' career. Um, he was yeah. in outstanding touch, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the Eels were so dominant throughout the you know the entirety of those, or not the entirety, but like the first 60 or 70 minutes um, in the middle um, because you had that you know one-two punch of Junior and Reg followed up by Kane absolutely tearing in off the bench, and he had a and Murata and sorry, well, yes, that, that's probably unfair on Murata too um, to forget about him, but he was also fantastic throughout the whole season rather than just Kane's first month. And I'm not necessarily uh, writing off that it didn't hurt having uh, Penny Terrapose yes. there as another big body ripping in at, in that early part of the season and a, too. Just an experienced hand. We know Penny could you know come up with the odd error, but he also knew his place defensively was um, very reliable in that regard. And even if he wasn't you know always flashy of his runs, sometimes they were very flashy off the back fence. But systematically, uh, he knew where to be, and that, that makes a difference. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So the Eels go five and zero. Oh, then dropped their first game of the season against the Roosters, go 5-1. and one. They win an absolute barn burner against the Canberra Raiders in Golden Point when Gufferson kicks his first career field goal, 25-24. They go on to beat the North Queensland Cowboys while under a significant injury toll, if I recall correctly, this game, 42-4, which was another game that probably ref- was more reflective of those efforts against the other Queensland franchises where it was built on a you know, really strong, uh, consistent performance that you know paid dividends in the back end of the contest. Uh, we then have a tough win against the Newcastle Knights where we won on a defensive display 10-4. to And this is where I probably, I'd probably say the season starts to, not unravel, but the inconsistency starts to slip in. Uh, a loss against the the Manly Seagulls, 28-18, in frustrating circumstances where we played some 
abysmal football in the first 20 minutes and end up costing us the game. Uh, we rallied to beat the Tigers 26-16, scraped by against the Dogs 18-16, uh, scraped by against the Sharks 14-12 in torrid conditions, it must be said. And then probably arguably our worst loss of the season outside of the South Sydney loss, the 14-12 loss against the Dragons, where we just you know did not get up for a game where they'd sacked their coach and were obviously motivated. And it was there to win as well, which is so frustrating. We go on the shutout the Storm 14-0, only to be shut out by the South Sydney Rabbitohs next week 38-0. Uh, a good win against the New Zealand Warriors, 24-18, is followed by a tough loss against the Panthers, 20-2, where they completely dominated possession and territory. And then we rally the season uh, to go on a two-game winning streak with a solid win against the Broncos, 26-12, and a tense win against the Tigers, 28-24. So that back end of the season was... Uh, I, it was patchy. There were, there were moments where it looked like we turned the corner in multiple games, but we couldn't recapture the, the dominant form of the first part of the season, couldn't we? It was, well, what do they say about a game of two halves? It was a season of two halves. Yeah, pretty much. And you, I think mixed in with the drop in form, you also started to get that impact of injury where we went without Moses for a, a short period of time. Yeah, this we is went a... without Dylan Brown for a short period mm-hmm. of time. This and is a, it's an injury topic, to, isn't it? Yeah, injury to Reed Marnie as well. So and I know that was only a short absence, but you started to get players who were either missing time out of the game or carrying an injury. And yeah, so you look when at you're talking like, about... I was going to say, you look at someone like Newcastle who had like four or five injuries at hooker, like an insane injury to hooker, and that obviously impacted their season. On like in an absolute sense because they were you know well down on, on the hooking depth, but for Parramatta it was tricky because we didn't have any long term injuries when it, barring Penny's unfortunate circumstances where he's you know had to step away from the football for the rest of the season after the first few rounds, um, we didn't have any long term injuries. But what we did have it was consistent disruptive injuries to the spine, which is yeah it's tricky because you don't want to you don't want to use that as a crutch. You don't want to say you know we could have been so much better if we didn't have the injuries because they only out. Mitch was out for about a month. Uh, he went out halftime against Canberra and then returned against the West Tigers, am I correct, in round 11? Yeah. So yeah. He, he missed, was that, half a game, one, two, three, three and a half games. So it was, he was out for roughly a month. But he came back yeah. and was obviously underdone playing for that calf nickel. Then you had yeah. uh, Reed injure himself against the Warriors with an AC joint strain, which isn't the most significant injury, but when you know, your main calling cut is passing off the ground, um, not being able to fully exert power through your shoulders is kind of an issue. And then Dylan, obviously, against the Rabbitohs, did the syndesmotic injury where he was out for a record five weeks. He came back in, in crazy time, but was obviously not at his best still. So that's disruptive. Yeah. It's disruptive. It, and what we're talking about there during that period of time is the Eels weren't in their best form. They still were getting the wins which kept them in the top four. But the form dropped off a little bit, so they comp- they compensated enough to get some victories. But as as you said there, uh, without having the the top squad uh, or all of the top squad fit and healthy, uh, or sorry, key players with the top squad hit, uh, fit and healthy, then you started to see that the form dropped off just a just a little bit. And given that in the sort of season that it was in 2020, now this isn't, there's no excuse, this isn't, I should stipulate, 
this isn't us saying, well, there's excuses for the eels because we're not talking about excuses. We're talking, we're looking for different reasons why a, a team can go through a, a bit of funk or a slump or, or that sort of thing. Even teams with the full squad at their disposal will go through a, a, a small slump in a long season. We saw, and, we saw it with Penrith. There was a, a yes. string of games where they could have lost, but they managed to, much like Parramatta did through their wins, grit their teeth and get through against the Titans, against the Cowboys, and even against the West Tigers at one point where they were, ended up running away from the game, but it was quite tense throughout the first 40 minutes. Um, that, that's correct. So what we're looking at is is we're separating, for a start, we're separating Parramatta's final series, which we'll get to, to the regular season, and yes. we're saying that the some of the scrappy form in the in the back half of the season can can really uh, we can find a bit of, of reasoning there with the uh, disruptions to the spine, uh, but also given a little bit of a tick because they would find a way to scrap out a win, uh, but it's not excusing games such as the loss to the Dragons or the or what I will call a capitulation against South Sydney in the yeah, regular there's no, season. There's no sugarcoating that one. It was a capitulation. No, there is no sugarcoating that one. That word capitulation was used, uh, I believe, inaccurately by both BA and uh, the journos picked up on it, and then they kept using the word capitulation, which I completely disagree with because that is – capitulation is basically a surrender without fight, a surrender without effort. And that loss, that 38-0 loss, that was as bad as it gets in terms of the effort that the team was putting in. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'm prepared to use that that word there. There were no excuses whatsoever for that. Uh, I, I don't care who was who was or wasn't out on the field, who was or wasn't completely fit. That was just a complete lack of effort in that game, and there and has to be called that way. And and likewise, the game against the, the Dragons, all the way through that you could feel that we were going to give that game up, maybe give that game up in terms of on the scoreboard, but it was, it just felt the vibe, the energy from the team did not feel right at any stage in that game. So and the uh, Dragons, to their credit, also play probably their most intense game of the season oh, on yes, the back of absolutely. Mary McGregor getting the flick. But you know Absolutely. the team, the team were aware of it coming in, and you you know it wasn't so much an ambush or anything. They were aware that this is going to be an emotional game for the Dragons, and you have to match. And Parramatta, we got we got away to a good start in that game. Yes, and it was the it was the lack of intensity that we displayed from the from that point onwards. Once we got that start, mm-hmm. that allowed the Dragons to draw on uh, that. Um, that energy that they had for doing something for the coach in that game. And if, however, if we had have maintained what we started off with in that game, if, or rather if we had taken advantage of the start that we had in that game, they wouldn't have got the chance to, um, to do what they did. From that, and that point that, on. That was probably one of the sub stories of the season, wasn't it? There was a number of games in that stretch where we started off with a good try or two and then took the foot off the throat. And that was yeah. you know, obviously encapsulated in that game against the Dragons, but there's definitely a few more games where we end up scoring first and just could not go on, and, and we either end up squeaking out a win or it was you know in uh, one of our uh, losses that we sort of just didn't go on against, uh, didn't go on with it rather. Sorry. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And of course, now we we really have to talk about the final series yes. because if if we're if we're looking at the roller coaster of the season through the regular season, we talk about the ups of the first half of the season and some of the downs in the second half of the season. I think we came into the finals with just enough of an upward momentum that should have put us in a in good stead, but then things didn't play out as they should have from our own perspective mm-hmm. in those finals matches. You know, it's a, a funny thing. I was just looking at the final series, and there's a very good chance that this mimics 2017 in that the Eels will give the Melbourne Storm their best like, game in the finals once again. And they were you know, close, so close to knocking off the Storm in the first week of the finals, this time from the top four rather than... Um, <clears throat> also, both, both times we're in the top four 2017, we finished fourth, my bad. But um, uh, this time we're travelling up to Brisbane rather than to Melbourne. And if we just gotten that win in, in 2017, you get the week off, one game from the grand final. And here, now the Storm, they you know crushed the Canberra Raiders when they played them last week. And they're going to come against the Penrith Panthers outfit that's obviously red hot, but also looked very vulnerable against South Sydney. So <laughs> that's a uh, sort of no crying over spilled milk, I guess. But you, you talk about rude, ruining missed opportunities, and that is right up there, isn't it? Look, it certainly is. That that first finals match against the Storm, I don't believe that the Eels got anywhere near enough credit for their performance in that game, considering the disruption that was caused by the loss, first of all, so early of Mike Acevo and the shuffling around of the back line, having to put Andrew Davey into the centres, having him getting uh, a head bin almost immediately after he came on and then Murata having to fill in for a short period of time out in the centres. It, it was, and then eventually losing Blake Ferguson as on the other wing, it was just a, one of those games where we were our own worst enemy in a number of crucial errors, and yet at the same time, there was the the football gods did not shine on the eels in that. And then when the game was over, despite all of this, you had critics such as Phil Gould saying this was nothing more than a training run for the Storm, with. The Eels both in a situation where uh, I, they led. I am 100% retweeting that back at Phil Gould off the TCT account if I may end up getting training run by the Storm in the grand final, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but not only not only was it a situation where the Eels had the early lead, but you also had the Eels pulling back to 18-all during the second half. And then that crucial error from Blake Ferguson. Yep. Triggered, triggered um, a, a quick sequence of tries from the Storm, which in reality put them in a final, uh, the Storm in a finals yeah, game. Yeah, so 49 minutes, we, pretty hard we locked up at 18 all with the Blake Ferguson try, funnily enough, where he took an age to ground the, the kick from Reed Marnie. That error then precipitated Jesse Bromwich, 54th minute, Brinker Lee, 57 minute, and Ryan Pappenhuis in 61st minute, just going bang, 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 and taking the game away from us. It was brutal. Yeah. It, it was it was a, a brutal way to have that game taken away. And Especially. we can't escape the we can't escape the big moments that we lost like that 
uh, moment from Blake Ferguson. That, that stings that. even more because one of the explicit reasons why we recruited Blake was he's a big game player. And yeah, you know, he yeah. has been. Like absolutely, he's been awesome for the Roosters and for New South Wales um, in those spotlight moments. But for us, when the spotlight shone on him, and I understand he's got a you know a banged up knee, but you know he made that error, and it just proved so costly. Yeah, and when you when you are trying to when there are so many critics who are using the out in straight sets in the finals as a criticism of the coach. But then you come down to key moments like that, where in that storm, in that finals match against the storm, that you had the error that was made there. It's a complete change of possession. You've instead of the eels rucking it out from their from their own end, you've got the storm being able to attack at a crucial moment in the game within the eels quarter. And of course, you can say, well, look, a good team defends an error. There's, there's no there's no avoiding that, but it still places undue pressure on the team at a time where they are down in numbers in ter- uh, sorry down in um, in their combinations with the the changes that had to occur around Sebo in, in the back line. Then you're also talking about the fact that they're going to have to come from behind with those disruptions and the storm being the ruthless team that they are. I'm sorry, I'll turn around and, I, yes, the Raiders got a couple of wins in the finals, but they got hammered by 30 to 6 they got embarrassed, against the yeah. Storm. They, they were embarrassed. And you can, they can, critics of the Eels can turn around and say, yeah, but the, the Raiders got two wins before they were beaten by the Storm. Well, the Raiders played two different teams to what the Eels did prior to that. They beat a Cronulla team that anyone is going to hammer. I'm sorry, and I'm not being disrespectful to the Sharks, but they Cronulla the themselves were so down. Yeah. They were so down on troops, and it and it took the Raiders quite a bit to get past the the Sharks in that first elimination final. And then they played a Roosters team that had been absolutely thumped in their last game of the year by South had been smashed by the Panthers physically in the first week of the finals and were basically sitting there ready to be taken with by a team with momentum in the in their second week. So credit to the Raiders for winning, but the way they bowed out against the Storm by comparison to how the Eels played against the Storm, it's chalk and cheese. But did you hear anyone coming out and criticising the Raiders? No one called it a training run. The Raiders' performance against the it's almost like against the a, storm. There's an agenda from certain people in the media, and I'm, this is just you know, me poking Phil Court a little bit because he's got so many good football takes, but he also does like to push his barrow every now and then, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, and the, the of course the problem is that it fits into a narrative that is drawn up against Parramatta. And I fear it's a narrative that's far too prevalent amongst Eels supporters. And I hope, I'm hoping it's not a a narrative that's being taken up by people within the Eels organisation with regard to the Eels performances, because you can have a look at the performances of Parramatta in this final series, and it doesn't correlate whatsoever to the performances in past years because 
there there really wasn't um, any any way that I could draw a parallel other than the I suppose the maybe a little bit the scoreboard, but then not even so because the the comparison between previous matches against the Storm that gap is is closing immeasurably despite the comments from Phil Gould or others saying, look, the Storm were always in control and Parramatta were never in the game and what have you. Yeah, we've still got a bit to go to be able to get past the Storm in those sorts of games, but that gap is narrowing and I tell you what, there's, if, I'm a, if I'm one of the other clubs that have not performed against the Storm in final series... I'd also be looking at how much do I need to do to close that gap as well. And you'd have to say, hey, the Raiders have a, a bit to go to close that gap mm-hmm. on the Storm right at the moment, in spite of the fact that they came into that match against the Storm with a history that says, hey, we can give the we can give the Storm problems. Well, no, they didn't give the Storm a problem in that finals match at all. So that's the context. To me, that's the context of this final series. How did those teams perform? And no, the Raiders didn't perform well against the Storm. The Storm were too good for them, just like the Storm were too good for Parramatta. But Parramatta gave them a far better um, contest than what the Raiders did. And we mentioned. And then it, when you look at, sorry, I was just saying we mentioned it during the review podcast for the Week One Finals. But if you look at the time of possession and the possession splits um, in that game versus the game last year, Round Two of the Finals, where we got blown out thirty-two nil, they're almost identical. Uh, the Storm absolutely owned the ball the majority of the game and yet in the round one the finals this year it was so much closer so the gap was being closed but like you said there is still plenty of work to do oh we we cannot we cannot have players making the sort of mistakes that they make in a finals match and expect to come out winning a finals match and it's you it then comes down to is are these sorts of errors something that can be attributed to the coach and his methods, or are these errors that the players are a hundred percent accountable for? So, if you look at if you look at and we go back to Fergo's error that he made with the with the rolling ball, they work on fielding the ball at training. It's it is a completely different scenario when it's happening in a game. But how does Brad Arthur stop an experienced player like Fergo making an absolute balls up of a rolling ball like that? Oh, it's beyond me. Um, how Maybe you could be looking at what the defence was like in defending that error. But if you were looking at, at error upon error upon error at, at crucial moments I think you've, you've got to point the finger at the players who've made those errors and and even then it's tough pointing at those some of those players because if you go looking at errors what was the what was the error that, that kicked this the uh, the rabbitos away in that finals it was it was Gutho fumbling the ball in the end goal now how can you how can you point to Gutho and say well, you you were one of the players that cost us that game against the Rabbitohs. You can't. But yet there's an error from him that was critical in the match. You you can look at someone like Dylan Brown, who threw the intercept, and go, 
mate, you cost us you cost us that game. You've helped us to exit the final series. But then you look at all the things that Dylan Brown does and brings to the team and and the development of him as a player over the last couple of years. And then you look at um, what blew the score right away, which was that Hail Mary play by Mitch Moses in the last minute of the game against the Rabbitohs. And you go, well, he shouldn't have done that. What on earth does that matter in the last minute of the game when yeah, you're, exactly. yeah. you're already down by eight points and there's 90 seconds to go yeah. and it's the last tackle? You've got to score a try in, in 20 seconds and then either decline the kick or just knock the kick off immediately. So I, yeah, you're that's not gonna, why I wasn't you're critical not of Moses for that Hail Mary play because it was, that was it. It was you know our only chance of snaring the um, 0.001% victory. Yeah, yeah, and it was, and we can talk about, uh, and people are looking at the scoreline in that, and and how many points were scored in the second half. But you can you can straight away look at eighteen points that came from mistakes or plays that probably would not have been done under normal circumstances. And it's a, it's a tough way to exit. These aren't excuses because we're straight out saying the Parramatta Eels weren't good enough to win those games. That's, that's straight out. But what is, the, what is the reason that they weren't good enough? Critical errors by individuals at critical times. And that's, that's something that is part of football. And perhaps it's something that's not part of teams where they've got players that are really good finals campaigners, but it also shows how close the Eels are as well. So, um, Indeed. yeah, I'm not going, I'm not going for it. I, I, I don't want to, this isn't an excuse. These are reasons why the Eels weren't good enough. So not excuses, not excuses for losing reasons for not winning if that i'm I'm trying to draw that line and and it sort of leads us in nicely to our next little segment we're going to talk about because experience in big games and the ability and the know-how in how to win those big games is going to be crucial for the eels to take the next step and uh, the selection of four players into the new south wales origin team may be the key for the eels in 2021 to making that next push into the finals so this was going to be about the player development on individual level of those four players, Quinton Gufferson, Junior Polo, Nathan Brown, and Reagan Campbell-Gillard. But there's also probably a, a bigger picture thing we can talk about too in what those players can bring back from origin in order to better the Eels as a team. Absolutely. Because one of the when we think about teams and who they look to recruit to their teams, besides obviously looking to fill the current needs of a squad, Players who fit highly on that sort of profile of, of a recruit are those who are experienced in the big arenas. If a club can recruit an origin player, then that's a massive coup for any club. It's It brings in that not just the big game experience, but it's it's part of the intense preparation. It's part of playing alongside the elite of the game against the elite of the game and the expectation about how you're going to play and prepare 
to get to that level. And to have four players who are currently within the team achieve that this year is I think it's gonna I think it's gonna make a tremendous difference to next year. And so just on the individual level now, um, you know, you get rewarded for a state of origin jersey in a dominant New South Wales team by only by having a great season, especially when you're trying to break into an incumbent team. And that's the case for all four players because Gufferson was around the team last year as the eighteenth and nineteenth man. But they've got to look into the starting team or the sort of the game day team. So let's start with Quinton Gufferson. Finished second in the Dally M, Dally M fullback of the year. And a bit of controversy about whether he should have been equal Dally M or better um, in terms of the overall medalist, but we'll put that behind, behind us because the whole Dally M voting process has been somewhat farcical for a number of years now. And it's not surprising that Gufferson was um, hard done by <clears throat> in the last week of the regulation season. But... Did we find out who the judge was in that I last round? I don't think... I'm not sure if they've publicised, because they meant to publicise all the results at some point. Um, and maybe it's there somewhere, but I haven't seen it. But, yeah, I know you don't want people to go and abuse the judge, but it's unfortunate that uh, that's how it worked out for Guffo, who statistically didn't have a great running game against the Tigers in round 20, but laid on two tries and had an absolutely incredible cover tackle in the last moments of the game to prevent the game from either being won or going to golden point for the Tigers. But that was a big part of Guffo's game, obviously, the, the ability to marshal the defense. But we saw Gufferson... Oh, it wasn't it wasn't like he developed a new a new part of his game because he's been a, a very competent ball player as the the sort of secondary playmaker option out wide for the Eels for a number of years now. But he sort of elevated to another level, didn't he? Just, you know, so clinical finishing off backline movements, put himself in position to either score or set up a man outside him or inside him. And as always was so... Uh, relentless in his support play. Yeah, and we're we're going to talk about uh, the coaching that goes into Guffo, as well as his effort there, because I've watched the work that goes into Gutherson, not only driven by himself but also by the coaches there. So you first of all this season you had the extra work that was done by him being part of a spine that was working with Joey Johns through the year. You're talking about a player who has been given that extra responsibility of uh, being the captain of the team. And a big part of what I've noted at Eels training over the last couple of years has been the, I suppose, the responsibility that's been handed over to the likes of um, uh, Gutherson, Moses, in directing the team at different points of training. And when you watch a captain's run nowadays, it, what I used to see from a captain's run was the coaches running the captain's run, then, then handing it over to the, the captain and the team to run things for about the last five minutes or so of the, of the captain's run. It's far more of the the team and the captain taking responsibility for the team in that last session of the year. Uh, what I've also seen from Gutho at training during this season has been the time that he's put into his passing game during extras. And he's, he's done work with um, BA and the assistant coaches in that period of time really working on either um, that that 
secondary pass where when I say the secondary pass, I mean the the pass that he's delivered after he's after he's been injected into the play. So it might be that that pass out to the winger or the pass to the player that's that slipped up beside him. Uh, a little bit of the kicking game. There, there's so many skill areas that he just keeps working on to develop, and we've seen the rewards that's come for that during this season. It is a reward for coaching. It's a reward for the effort that Gutho puts into his own preparation as well. Okay. Now, of course, that's what we're looking at with Gutho as one of the leaders in the group or the person who carries the C next to his name. But then we're talking about the other players that are in origin in Paulo Brown and RCG. The three of those fellas obviously are important to our forward pack, which is definitely a strength of the Eels. And each of those also has a role to play as leaders within the organisation. And I don't think we can underplay in any way what that might mean for them in their growth, not only as players, but as leaders within our club. Yeah, and I've talked about this before, but last year Junior Paul issued a challenge to his teammates and to himself to aspire towards representative honours in order to better the Parramatta Eels and better themselves. And it's good to see that Junior led the way in that regard alongside his other two running mates in the Ford pack. And I think what they're going to get from this origin experience is going to be huge for the Eels moving forwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you're talking about, first of all, Junior, who just individually has reached amazing performance levels this year. He's the fittest that he's ever been. And as you said, he's he's an inspiration to the others within the organisation. RCG, who was at that level once before and is arguably playing just as well, if not better, than he ever has in his representative career before. And Nathan Brown, who, let's face it, has become a completely different level of player since joining the Eels. Yeah, Brown's transformation from sort of troubled firebrand into uh, a fiery leader at Parramatta has been amazing, hasn't it? He's been sort of the, the poster boy for Brad Arthur and his staff's ability to take a reclamation project and develop them into something more. He's got a real passion to be something more individually. And I think he's he's just, I don't know if, if scratching the surface is the right terminology, but I think what we are going to start seeing from Nathan Brown is a player who's going to drive similar ambitions from the rest of the team. Yep. Yeah, and um, I suppose when you think about it, though, you've got those three, um, plus Gufferson, and then you've got you know the rest of the spine. Like there, there is that core of really good players now, and it's just a matter of. And Bernie spoke about this in terms of individual player development in order to take that next step. Because yes, you can go out and recruit someone, and that's all well and good. But this roster is nowhere near maxed out on its own potential internally. No, no, not at all. And I just wanted to touch on a few things about the roster this year. First of all, we had the debuts of Dunster, Davey and Atukamanu. It's obviously disappointing that we're losing Davey and Atukamanu, 
but in terms of Davey, and to talk about it, I really, I really don't have any ill will in my uh, wishes for their future success in any way, shape, or form. Because Andrew Davey, with being a late bloomer, he's got a very short period of time where he can extract the most that he can out of his NRL career. And Stefano, as a middle forward, you'd have to say that's an area where there's the greatest competition within the Parramatta Eels club. So full credit to all of those fellas for achieving what they've done so far and, and perhaps starting to launch their careers, even if it's even if they end up getting uh, the better rewards at another club. I think they're leaving on quite good terms from the Eels. And as we've seen with other players in the past, we don't burn bridges with players. So you, you never know. But further than that, I've just had a bit of a, a look at the Eels roster this year. We used something like 27 players for the season. Of those 27 players, 10 of them have only played for the Parramatta Reels. So we're talking about a group of players who are developed by, by us in that regard. In fact, really, it should be 11, except for the fact that Daniel Alvaro was loaned to the Warriors this year. Players such as, just further to that, players such as Gutho, Nathan Brown, Junior Paulo, uh, Mitch Moses, Will Smith, Kaka, uh, Gowie, George Jennings, Sean Lane have now played more matches for the Parramatta Eels than they have for any other single club. So those players that have played elsewhere, they're now what you would consider more to be Parramatta players. Of course, some of those that we're going to lose, but this is just how the roster looks. There's another eight players within that group that you can say are junior pathways players. And if you wanted to add Ray Stone and Reid Marnie, who joined the club at NYC level, you're looking at 10 players within the Parramatta squad for 2020 who you'd classify as being Parramatta developed players. So I think the club is trending in the right way if they want to call themselves, and if, well, they do call themselves a development club. So there's a lot of positives there. And um, although we're going to talk in a, in a little bit about uh, looking ahead and signings and things like that, I think that's a, that's a critical factor to look at when you're talking about the roster. And the other thing, too, about the Eels roster is that there's been a massive change, really, when you start to look at the, uh, the Parramatta Club from... Uh, comparing it to uh, 2017, uh, sorry, 2018, mm -hmm. there's very few players uh, going forward who will have been with the club since 2018. Now, I've just talked about the Parramatta developed players, but now, now I'm sort of looking at as well the the turnover that's happened in terms of we had a a wooden spoon season in 2018 
and how the club is looking to reinvent itself since 2018, despite the fact that we've got players that you would call as Parramatta developed players. So let me just run through, and this might take a little bit of time, just let me just run through the players that will be at the club next year, that are on the club at the club currently, and you'd have and, and who whether they were at the club in the in the in the uh, wooden spoon season. So at the moment, Daniel Alvaro, there's some rumours that he's going on to the St George Dragons. He was with the club in 2017. Oh, sorry, 2018. Uh, Wanga Blake, no. Dylan Brown wasn't in first grade at that stage. Nathan Brown, yes. Regan Campbell-Gillard, no. Um, Hayes Dunster, still going through pathways back then. Blake Ferguson, no. Clint Gutherson, yes. We've got a cloud over Michael Jennings, so mm-hmm. I don't know whether we should comment there. Oregon Kafusi, he made his debut right at the end of 2018. So I don't know that you could necessarily say that he was a, a regular roster member yeah. uh, at the end of 2018. Um, Sean Lane, no. Reed Marnie had just made his debut during that season. Uh, Ryan Madison, no. Mitch Moses, yes. Marada made his debut in that season. Junior was still with Canberra. Sebo, no. Will Smith, yes. Ray Stone played one game in 2018. And that's it. That's it. That's yeah. the that's the that's the rundown of the background of the players who will, are still with us next year, and um, what their background was in relation to 2018. That's and bear in mind where I'm, I just ran through a list of what about 17 or 18 players. That's that's out of a, a squad of. Of thirty odd that um, that were with the club this year, and now we've already trimmed it down. And then that those ones that are remaining, there's very few that had that background going back to the wooden spoon season. So there's there's certainly been change within the organisation. So when when we're looking at things, is there is there enough change that goes on at Parramatta? Well, from a player perspective, most definitely, and there will be massive change next year. Now, also, from a coaching and staffing perspective, you have to look at someone like Ryan Carr, who only just joined the club this year. And we didn't get to see the full impact of Ryan Carr because he was due to be the... Uh, he, he's a full-time coach. He was looking after the... Uh, officially looking after the uh, Parramatta New South Wales Cup squad. But he's also there in a coaching capacity with the first grade team and does a lot of work with skills coaching. You also had a, had uh, had um, uh, changes in the um, uh, with Trent Elkins, who's involved in um, his first year at doing the um, uh, head trainer strength and conditioning mm-hmm. at the club. So again, the, and he was a late inclusion after um, after we had the change right at the end of uh, of last season. So there's a lot of change that still occurs within the club. So we've got, we've got that blend, I think, at the moment of players who have a Parramatta background, a strong Parramatta black background, 
plus also a turnover to keep things fresh and changing. So um, it, that's just my observation on the uh, on the roster this year at the moment, mate. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a beast that we've talked about in, insofar as like the churn versus stability and how you need a degree of both in order to be a premiership calibre side. And I suppose the Eels had a little bit, uh, I don't want to say too much, but uh, it's a, it's been a, a battle, hasn't it, with like sort of the, the some of the late changes you've had to make. But in saying that, this is a roster now Brad Arthur has gotten control of in, in recent years and is now built towards being a top four competitor. So now the onus will be to find that balance of churn versus stability to make them, you know, a premiership contender proper. So before we start looking at uh, looking ahead at, at next year too much with and signings, because we're, we're just about to get to that, before we wrap up 2020, what's, first of all, what would be your main criticisms of our season this year, mate? Yeah, I mean, on a player level, obviously we've spoken about making those errors that have been costly in terms of the game flow. So the players really really need to sort of tighten up the screws there. I think that mentally they made steps forwards, but they're still not the complete package yet. Um, they've certainly learned to overcome adversity at various degrees throughout the course of 2020 on and off the field in regards to COVID-19 and, you know, the course of certain games. But, you know, show they're, they're still showing that they're half a notch below Melbourne and that sort of similar ilk of team when it comes to the, the bright lights in terms of finals football. So that's the probably the big key in terms of the plays. The coaches do need to be reflected in this as well. I think that probably Brad was a, bit, a little bit guilty of outfoxing himself in the last game against South by taking Stone and Smith on the bench um, when he had Oregon there. And, you know, sort of, you know, looking to try and get more mobile against the big pack and sometimes you just need, able to, need to be able to trade blows through the middle. And I think that's something that I would have reflected on internally already, you know, in, in their review of that game and the post-mortem of that result. So, yeah, in terms of, like, other, other criticisms, I mean, I think off the field the players are pretty well behaved for us this year. We can't really complain. There was um, Stefano had his one moment at Newcastle um, where he, you know, uh, took a shot from some of his mates and family after his debut, and that was a breach of the COVID protocols, which was unfortunate. But, yeah, uh, I, I suppose... One criticism of the club rather than the team is just the last couple of weeks post uh, post the uh, result against South Sydney, we've sort of seen a trend towards a little bit of the old Parramatta being played out in the media. I'm not a huge fan of that. Um, so that's hopefully something the club can get on top of. Yeah, uh, that's definitely something that hasn't pleased me in the last couple of weeks. And I don't really want to get into it too much at the moment. I'm I'm really looking to see how that, plays out, I don't like seeing anything which is indicative of a divide within the organisation. I think the strides that Parramatta made going forward was based on unity and in having the club all based at uh, both administration and and football department at uh, Kellyville. It's all based around unity. And I think that I'll... I'll see how this plays out a little bit more because it's very important that the message gets out there about unity. And if we've if we've got either journos or any individuals playing silly buggers when it comes to that aspect of our organisation, we need to make sure that we put a full stop on that because it's not it's not the way forward towards uh, success. 
So I'm just keeping an eye on that just at the moment. Yeah, and frustrating if, when we're we're on the cusp of being a you know a legit long term contender, you know, like a, a top four, fi- you know, either fixture or or you know going to be semi reliably in the top four in the foreseeable you know short term future. Don't jeopardize that. You know. Yeah, and one of the things that I was probably guilty of this season. This is I'm, I'm going to start off my criticism of of Parramatta with a criticism of myself was expecting that the club might be a genuine title contender this season so quickly after a spoon season. And I think to be to start to become a regular finals contender, we are now into that territory. And I think we are closer than ever before to challenge for a title, but I probably placed higher expectations maybe this year than just myself. Um, I think that if I'm to make a criticism of the club, I w- of the team, I would say that there were a couple of players that didn't have the sort of seasons in 2020 that they had in 2019 Mm -hmm. and I'm not afraid to because I'm sure the players themselves would be the first to put their hand up and and saying that um, Sean Lane who was uh, outstanding last year was not as strong this year not that he had a horrid 2020 but there was probably more down moments than you would have would have liked or expected from Sean Lane in, in 2020. I would say that Mike Acevo obviously had a down season in 2020 compared to the heights of 2019. Yep. And you'd also have to say that after a raging start to the season, that the back end of the season for Kane Evans was somewhat disappointing. So there were, there were a few players that, um, uh, two of whom are, uh, will still be at the club next year, who you'd be looking to lift a little bit. And maybe we can throw Fergo into there as well, that his 2020 season was nowhere near the 2019 season that he had for us. And, uh, well, given he only had half a season with us last year, I don't really want to talk too much about Wonga Blake because I, you know how I feel there in terms of positionally that he may be better suited to wing than centre, but then in that last game, and I know it's only one game, but it just seemed to be that he functioned a lot better alongside Hayes Dunstone than he did alongside Blake Ferguson. So maybe that's something that we that we need to look at. And so I think if I can continue that criticism further, I'd say that with that on that right side, those two just never got it right this year. Yeah, I think that's been made quite clear, hasn't it, across the course of the 20 games? Yes, yes. And we can accept players going through a bit of a slump because Mike Acevo certainly went through a slump in the second half of the of the year. And and I think it's there there could be some valid criticism that BA could have used Hayes Dunster earlier in the season when Micah was in that slump, but I'm not going to level it too much there because I, because having seen what they were doing at training, that 
the work that went into mica to turn it around he was starting to show evidence of that being turned around uh, said that they were they were making that decision based on mica's uh, ceiling that he had for how high he could get as in his performances whereas hayes was a little bit unknown but i i think we reached a point where Mike probably could have done with a, a week or, or two off, and that might have been an ideal time to debut Hayes. But then again, that said, Hayes got his debut before the end of the year, and I really don't <laughs> think he let us down no. in any way. In, a, so, in extraordinary circumstances, too. Caught up the morning yeah. of the game saying, hey, kid, it's time to go. Yeah. And uh, with regard to um, uh, any criticism towards BA, I think, there's sometimes there could be some valid criticism about uh, the use of the bench, and um, if uh, if I was to, if I was to level a, a little bit of criticism, I think it would be around. Uh, I still I would have still liked to have seen a little bit more game time given to someone like Stefano. Uh, not sorry, not Stefano Oregon. Yes, he's come on. Um, that uh, and yet there's been some criticism of Oregon that his his handling errors were starting to head towards the Penny Terrapo handling errors territory, and that we could expect a, one or two errors from him per game, whereas we we really wouldn't want that in the short stints that he was getting. Uh, but defensively, I think he's he, he's a very strong player and his carries are very strong. And I just would have liked to have seen a little bit more game time. That's a minor criticism that I that I make there. And I think it's one of those things too where without having the Canterbury Cup this year, the the time that he could have got on the field might have uh, in Canterbury Cup level might have also helped mm-hmm. in regard to how much game time when he was called on for NRL he might have been able to get. So... And then when you you spoke about the the bench selection for that last round, I think the that loss of Murata as an option coming off the bench with his uh, suspension, it, it made it an awkward. I think it made it an awkward bench selection because we were dealing with Kane Evans, who again I think was selected for having a. a a higher ceiling of what he might be capable of, and then he didn't deliver in the in the uh, final against the rabbits. I think, to be fair as well, I don't think Andrew. I think Andrew Davy had probably his worst game in I'm the NRL. That's true. Yes, and I think that that exacerbated when the changes were made when players were off the field, like Junior and Reg and Nathan Brown, it it meant that whereas in the early part of the season that we were maintaining the punch and the platform, all of a sudden in the latter part of the in, in that particular game, we, we went from maintaining the rage to a total loss of the rage. So when it comes to the total season, I think you're overall, you're looking at success for the total season you're looking at the team trending upwards. But if again, if I'm looking at criticism, I'm not going to ignore the fact that there are players that next year I'm going to be expecting a little bit more of when it comes to 
finals football because I'm I'm looking for I'm looking for players to lift at that time of year rather than to have the number of errors that we had at this at this point in the year. But that's that's really I think me being picky with some criticisms because I don't think we can ignore criticisms. But let's look at again the overall positives that we might take out of this season, mate. Yeah, I mean, like we said before, we're setting ourselves up for long-term success, assuming that we hold everything together on and off the field of the club. But, you know, we've got the the, the core of a roster, the starting roster, that can, you know, be a, a feasible premiership contender. They just need to grow internally. Um, you know, the coaches obviously will want to adapt and, and sort of take their lessons from 2020 into 2021. And then, yeah, and you sort of want to garnish that with a, a few recruits here and there that can make a difference when it comes to, you know, roster management across the course of a season, with, um, you know, depth and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's very important that we keep examining the fact that the team continues to grow. You don't have a team that, if we're honest, we say 2017, BA and the coaches absolutely squeezed the lemon dry when it came to performance in getting to the top four. Yes. Because a lot of that same roster just could not put it together with the little bit of adversity that they hit in 2018. And there was no escaping the fact that there were holes in the roster. There was a need to add to the roster in 2019 for us to start climbing back up again. And when that was done, BA absolutely proved that he's the coach to keep continuing the eels in their upward climb. As as I said at the start of the podcast, to go from spoon to regular season fifth to regular season third is trending in the right direction. And provided we get these additions to the roster correct going into next year, then we are looking at windows starting to open and we are looking at players whose leadership will improve. And I'm quite excited about the prospects of um, what I'm going to, I've mentioned his name before, but I've quickly become a big fan of Ryan Carr, what I've seen from him at training and a little bit of extra work that he does with individual players. I think there's no question of the fact that Ryan Carr is a coach on the rise. He will end up being a first-grade coach somewhere, and he's going to add a lot to what BA is able to do with the team coming into 2021. And I'm pretty sure BA has a high opinion of Ryan Carr as a coach as well, and we saw in very quick time the impact that he gave to Parramatta's Canterbury Cup team just in the trials and also in the uh, one game that they got under their belt. Mm -hmm. They very quickly became what they looked like a well-coached team when he had minimal time with them. Obviously, there's credit that goes to BA with in terms of those that are, were part of the first-grade roster before, but 
there was a lot of blokes who were on second tier contracts that he brought into the into the organisation that I thought seemed to click pretty well as part of a team. So I think he's gonna. I think I really think you're going to see a little bit of a bit more of growth in the club via what Ryan Carr will bring there, and also I'm going to say as well Trent Elkin because that was his first season working with the club and he is he's a lot more than a trainer and strength and conditioner i i see him jumping on in onto the field in when they're doing extras and getting involved with the players and working on their skills uh, he's he is a he is a great addition to the club and these two fellas we talk about the club needing to continually evolve and change and what have you. And, and BA always does that with his own coaching. But you have got two blokes who this was just their first season with the club. I think they're going to bring something a little bit more next season in, in the way of their impact on the club. Yeah, absolutely. And, right. so you're going and to just, uh, well, what I was going to say is the, the aspect of growth within the club is is something that I think people need to look at that capacity for growth and 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 where it's heading because this season we saw players who have reached the what has been a, a the best form of their career and those that are very early on in their career and we've we seem to have a nice little blend that's going forward. And that really leads us into looking ahead and the signings thus far and what sort of signings we'd maybe like to see the club aim for from this point onwards. And that sort of ties us in nicely to our final segment, doesn't it? Where we take a look towards 2021 and some of the initial movements that the club has taken to strengthen and rebuild their roster. So yesterday we had an announcement from the Parramatta Eels, which was um, actually surprising given that we've sort of been a little bit slow on this sort of stuff until the, the pre-season launches. But we um, had a, a three-player announcement. So the, um, the Eels announced uh, Tom Opachik, who had been linked to the Eels for a number of weeks now on a one-year deal. He joins us by way of the North Queensland Cowboys. He brings 43 NRL games of experience to the team and is a <clears throat> centre specialist. So he'll fill in the gap that um, could potentially be there with Michael Jennings pending on the outcome of his B sample and also probably just compete for spots, you know, given that centre's been a bit of a, a spotty palm, uh, a spotty, I don't know, it's a good way of putting it, but an uh, unstable uh, um, part, uh, position at, at parts of um, 2020. Gosh, that was hard to get out of my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, joining him is uh, a returning eel, believe it or not, in Joey Lusick, who spent two years at the Eels in 2014 and 2015, or 24-1-5, as the club has put there. Obviously, adding in an extra four there, or an extra five. They've, just, they've butchered that. So they've got, instead of going 2014, they've gone 20,415. So he's come back from the future <laughs> to help us win a premiership, um, doing a Arnie Schwarzenegger and Terminator impression there. But yeah, Joey um, will deputise Reed Money at Hooker and he's spent some time with the Salford Reds in the ESL where he's been surprisingly um, successful for them. Took them to the grand final last year um, where they ended up losing, unfortunately. And then this year, while they haven't been as effective in the regular season, they also made it to the Challenge Cup final. 
where unfortunately, once again, they lost it. So Joey will do a good job of um, deputising Reed, and it gives the Eels a specialist hooker on the books, which is something that they needed behind Marnie, who was obviously balanced on a knife's edge throughout the course of the season because he was injured heading into COVID. And then finally, headlining the uh, the Free Peace Recruitment Act is Isaiah Papali'i, who is the only player joining us on a longer than one-year deal. He joins us for two years um, by way of the Warriors. Uh, edge specialist. I think he played a little bit in the middle in recent times for the Warriors, but his preferred position is on the flanks. Um, he brings 59 games of NRL experience to the Eels and will really challenge for that edge spot where I think we, we need a little bit of um, com- competition for the likes of Sean Lane, I think. Yeah, and he is an interesting addition because he brings that aggressive running and provides that edge option that perhaps we didn't have as much of this year. Definitely, yeah. And he links again with Murata Yukore, who I believe was a good mate of his from their warrior days. So he doesn't come completely cold into the organisation in terms of being the new boy and not knowing anyone in the uh, in the club. So it's uh, a little bit of a reunion with uh, an old mate for his his part. I think when we when we go back and we look at this the total club scenario, we had that announcement of the eleven players who are leaving. Since that point in time, you've had the the huge question mark now over Michael Jennings, which takes that up to twelve. You've had the departure of George Jennings that takes it up to thirteen, and the little bit of the well, the, the rumours around a, a potential move of Daniel Alvaro to the Dragons. So we are potentially sitting at 15 players in the top squad, well, the full-time squad in the bubble of 32 departing, which takes it down to 17. Now, that then means we've had three players that have come in that's plenty of spots still available within the top 30. Yeah, a lot of work so to do. We, a lot of work to do. There is a, little, a lot of work to do. Now, one of the things that you mentioned before, mate, was when you said about the club unexpectedly announcing these players, and that unexpectedly meaning that it was a re- relatively quick announcement of some recent signings compared to previous form when it came to the club making their announcements. And I agree with you. It was a little bit fast in comparison. However, I look at it this way. With the negative media that's been hitting the eels in recent weeks, I think the the member base, the supporter base, needed some other news coming out of the eels. That's fair. Other than... Other than questions of a divide within the club or questions of external lobby groups and powerful businessmen that want to put pressure on the club. And it's just a narrative which needed to, if not have a full stop on it, because I don't think the media, once they get their teeth into something, they don't like to let it go. But the club, I think, needed to let out a little bit of good news and say, look, there's things happening on this front. And I think it was a great move by the club to make a relatively quick announcement. So um, kudos to them for doing that. Now, when it comes to the fact that there are still spots, I think it's 
I think it's significant the, the the recruitment that must be done because here is a chance to really freshen the club up, not just with players filling spots because you will always get a certain amount there where they are looking for players who can who can come in and do a job. But also think you've got a, a an opportunity there with so many places available that you can give the place a bit of a different feel. Let me take you back to fairly recent history, mate. Out of, coming out of 2018, it was a club who just won the spoon and needed something just to kick start going into 2019. Enter the huge group of youngsters that were promoted. And their impact was immediate on the training field when it came to early season conditioning. They were leading the runs. They were the most. They brought a level of enthusiasm into the playing group, which became infectious. And the same thing is about to happen again, coming into next season. There is a group of about eight to ten players who will be introduced to the full-time training of the preseason. They don't necessarily. It won't necessarily mean that all of them will stay with the full-time group going into next season, but they'll be part of the pre-season. And some players, uh, I'm not, not sure if everyone's familiar with this, but some players, as part of their contract, they, uh, they're not. I'm not talking about a development contract. I'm saying part of their contract with the club, their development might involve doing an NRL pre-season. They might go back to playing under-20s or, or, or Reggie's, but part of their contract says, at this point, of time in your contract, you will do an NRL pre-season. And that's critical to what they become as a player. That's critical to their growth. So we'll have a number of players, young blokes that are coming into the squad. As I said, I'm expecting about eight to 10 young blokes that will do a pre-season. That is going to, I think, give that little bit of impetus. Then into next season, you're going to have potentially more than 50% of the group, including the development players, who weren't there as part of the, as part of the squad, full-time squad, as part of the bubble in 2020. That's, that is a major yeah. freshener. That, that, this is, look, it's been nothing short of a clean-out, but it, you can just picture the freshen-up that's there with so many new faces. You can imagine that that little burst of enthusiasm that is injected into the club going into next year. There is a real positive to take out of this, um, uh, this new group of players that would be there. Even though, like we spoke to Bernie about, and Bernie said, I can basically pick your starting 13 and a couple of your bench to start the season next year. No doubt, because they're the core players that have been retained. But then you've got all these players that are there all the time, training, interacting with the players, being that breath of fresh air in the, in the uh, organisation. So you've got that combination of stability and freshness that's there. That's exactly what you want going forward every year, isn't it? 100%. And like I said, it's about juggling that, that balance and hopefully they've got it right for this season or this upcoming season. I think, I think you're going to see 
uh, six to seven signings of players who have some NRL experience or are genuinely uh, on the cusp of NRL external recruits. And I think you will see three to four young players within the club elevated potentially straight into the top 30. Yeah, it would not That's be That's my prediction. Yeah. That's my prediction. I don't think it's been finalised about whether the development contracts are four or six development contracts. That in itself might also impact how many of the young players go directly into the top 30. So we'll see how that plays out. Yep. But I, I think there are some players there that whose whose development can't be denied, whose progress can't be denied, and uh, your for those who enjoy watching the uh, GIO schoolboys competition, we saw a little bit of the uh, young talent coming through the club that was on show in the uh, Blacktown St Pat's team. So um, keep your eye on the uh, on the schoolboys, and if we through TCT and our our platforms, various platforms, be it so our social media or the website, we'll try and keep you up to date with uh, what to watch or any highlights that come out in that regard. Exactly. Now I've got an anxious puppy that needs a little bit of love, so let's wrap it up. It's also been an hour and twenty, which is um you know a pretty pretty long for a season review, but there was plenty to talk about. Um, any but mate, of- I, I even wonder. I even wonder. We've 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 made this for the people to listen to. We probably, if we were sitting around having a, having a few beers or whatever, we probably could have been going for about three or four hours. Don't, so we're don't, cutting it short. Don't tempt for everyone. me. Don't tempt me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, um, it, it has been a long. It has been an extraordinarily long one. We will continue with some podcasts throughout the off season and pre season because there's little bits of Parramatta that we can. Uh, we'll be having a bit of a chat about, and also there, there could be some other things that we decide we'll, we'll yeah, look into. So exactly. Stick with us. Certainly stick with us. As always, thanks for stopping by and listening, and join the conversation on the Cumberland Fro. Stay safe for another week, guys, and look forward to some more content coming up. Thank you.